Hello. <laughs> there we are. <laughs> hey, good evening, guys. How are we all doing? We good? You know, my wife Sarah and I, we've been married uh, for almost 14 years now, okay? 14 years of being married, and it's just been absolutely awesome. But I'd say for the first eight years, there was one glaring issue in our marriage, and Sarah would lovingly bring this to my attention very often, and it was this. I snored at night, okay? I was just a snore. Now, I can't really see you guys yet, but raise your hand if you're willing to admit that you snore. Where are my people at? Okay, that you snore. That's just your thing. That's your thing. Now, to be honest, to be honest, for years, I just told Sarah, I said, look, babe, I'm a man. Men snore. Like, that's just what we do. And she's like, no, Eric, you got to understand, there's snoring, and then there's the sound that a grizzly bear would make if it was dying, and that's you, okay? Like, that's what you're doing. And I was like, no, 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 it's not that bad. It's not that bad. And finally, Sarah's like, Sarah's like Eric, we got to figure this out. Like, I, I literally can't sleep at night. It sounds like as, as you're snoring that you're, you're, like, losing your breath, that you're, like, literally dying. Like, we got to get this figured out. And so I scheduled myself a sleep study appointment. And this is like not like any other doctor's visit. It's, it's a really weird experience. You show up at 8 p.m. at night, and they greet you, and nobody else is around. I didn't actually see anyone else at this sleep study, but they kind of walk you down this hallway full of kind of like what looked like hospital rooms, kind of like hotel rooms. And they walk you down this hallway, and then they open one of the doors and said, okay, this is going to be your room. And they let me know. They said, we are literally going to watch you sleep all night. And I just thought, that's a weird job. That's just weird, but okay. So they're like, we're going to watch you sleep all night. We're going to monitor you. We're going to hook you up to all these things, and, and then we'll determine, like, if there's any issue with your sleeping. <coughs> and so we, uh, I, I remember getting into the room and, and, you know, sitting down on the bed and and I remember one of my first thoughts was, man, I, like, I, I got to go to the bathroom. I got to make sure I go to the bathroom before this whole thing begins because once I'm all hooked up, like, I'm not going to be able to get up in the middle of the night. So I got to make sure I, I use the bathroom. And in my room, there's a bathroom. And I remember the door was open. The light was off, but the door was open. So I sit down on the bed, but then the technician walks in. And him and I just kind of begin this conversation. We're having this great conversation. He says he's a Christian, and he's telling me about this church that he goes to. And one thing leads to another. I mean, we're just having this great conversation. I don't even realize it, but he's already hooked me up completely to all of these sensors. And so at the end of it, I realize, man, I, I'm not going to the bathroom. Like, I'm just going to have to suffer all night long. And so I'm sitting there, and I remember the TV was on, and, and then this guy turned off the TV. And, and before he left the room, he said, hey, um, uh, Eric, I, I have a question for you. He said, I know this sounds crazy, but I just want to ask you a question. Um, do you believe in ghosts? And you guys, if you know anything about me, I hate scary movies, okay? I'm telling you, in our house, the scariest thing we watch is Cocomelon. That's it. Like, that's where we draw the line. I do not like scary movies. They freak me out. I don't want anything to do with them. And so this guy says this, and it kind of puts me on high alert. My heart starts beating, and I explain to him, I go, I, no, I don't believe in ghosts. I think that's one of the ways that Satan spiritually distracts us and, and diverts our attention away from Christ. And no, I don't believe in ghosts. And, and he said, oh, yeah, yeah, me neither, me neither. I, I don't believe in ghosts either. And then he said this, but he said, but the last guy who slept in this bed that you're sleeping in, he said in the middle of the night he woke up, 
and something was hovering over his bed and tickling his feet. Again, cocoa melon, like that's scary for me, right? And all of a sudden I start to panic a little bit. And then he tells me another crazy story. And I'm freaking out in the no joke, no joke, you guys. After he tells me that, he's, he's standing right by the door and he goes, well, good night, and slams the door. Now picture it, like, 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 imagine what I'm feeling. I'm sitting there in a room, all hooked up. He's just told me some horrible nighttime stories that you're not supposed to tell adults or kids before bed. And remember, I had to go to the bathroom. I'd have not have been into the bathroom. I don't know if creepy tickle man is in the bathroom. Like, I'm losing my mind, right? Like, I remember texting my wife, Sarah, and I was like, I'm not sure I'm going to make it. Like, I love you. The thing is, I remember that really impacted me. It was hard for me to fall asleep that night. But then it started to dawn on me. I was like, you know, I don't believe that stuff. Why is that having such an impact on me? I began to think, man, what is truth? Like, what can we really bank our lives on? We live in a, in a cultural moment right now where your truth is just as good as anybody else's truth, or so they say. That everyone can believe their own things about God, about humanity, about what's right, about what's wrong. But it's leaving all of us spiritually paralyzed. Not knowing up from down, right from wrong, where do we go from here? And maybe there's some of you here tonight who you would, you would describe yourself as spiritually confused. Uncertain about what truth actually is. And my, my prayer and my desire tonight is to tell you in the clearest ways that I can, the truest, the best, the greatest story in the history of the world. A story that's about you. A, a story that's about a God who loved you so much that he went to incredible lengths and did for you which something that no one else could ever do for you. And tonight at the end of this, I believe every single one of us in this room has a next step to take. And I just want to invite you to pray as we're looking at scripture, as we're talking about this great love story, as we're talking about truth. As we're talking about the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that you might ask yourself, God, what is my next step? You see, we, we, we made it crystal clear this morning, things are not okay. That sin has entered into the story of the world, into our lives, and the problem is out there in the world for sure, but the problem is in me as well. And the problem is in you that sin continues to run rampant, that sin is any kind of rebellion or rejection of God. It's literally any thought, any word, any action that dishonors God, that disobeys God, that dethrones God and puts us in his place. And sin isn't just a bad decision, it's a death decision. But God told us from the very beginning, if you choose to reject me, if you choose to disobey me, it will lead to death. Our sin, my sin, your sin, separates us from God. 
ended this morning saying, your sin is too big for you. Your struggles, your temptations, your addictions, your habits, they're too powerful for you. And the only way forward is if God chooses to intervene. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about tonight. Because you see, sin will take you farther than you wanted to go. It'll keep you longer than you wanted to stay. And it will cost you more than you are willing to pay. And sin must be dealt with. Tonight we're going to look at the story of how God, in his wonderful justice and mercy and love and grace, chose to deal with our sin. Our anchor text Ephesians chapter 4 is about to take a turn for us. Paul began by saying, do not live lives that are based in futile thinking and empty thinking. And so we talked about how we need to have right perspectives of God. We need to think about who he is and see him as a holy, infinite, powerful, sovereign God. We talked about today how our sin gets in the way of that and then Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 20 he says this that however is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your mind and to put on the new self Created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. How, how do we experience this transformation, this, this forgiveness, this freedom that Paul is talking about? It begins by you answering this question. Is Jesus Christ a liar? Is he a lunatic or is he Lord? The famous Christian thinker and writer C.S. Lewis, he called this the, his trilemma. That Jesus is either, he can't be all of them, he is either a liar. Meaning he intentionally deceived people while he was here on earth. Or he's a lunatic, he was literally out of his mind. And he thought he was God, he thought he was the Messiah. He thought he was supposed to save the whole world, but he really wasn't right in the mind. Or And if he's a liar or a lunatic, dismiss him and don't follow anything he says. But if he's Lord, then that means the only right response is to lay down our lives before him and say, you are Lord, I am not, I submit completely to you. Jesus did a lot during his life, during especially the three years of ministry that he had. He, he, he was described as the good shepherd. He, he would go around healing and teaching and talking about how the kingdom of heaven was at hand, that he was starting this brand new movement with him at the very center. At one point he had this friend named Lazarus, a best friend for him, who died and whose sisters came to him and said, our brother is dead. Jesus wept with him. 
You see, Jesus was fully human and fully God, and so he felt the emotions of the moment. And maybe your picture of Jesus is that he, he's so other than you are that you could not re- he couldn't relate to you or understand anything about your life. You need to know that Jesus was 100% human. That he wept in this moment because his best friend was dead, and he saw the devastating effects of that on the people around him. But he wasn't just 100% human, he was also 100% God, and he rose Lazarus from the dead. He he traveled around and he fed a couple thousand people on multiple occasions. At one time, as he was walking through a crowd, a woman came up to him who had been bleeding for 12 years, and she was healed. Like she literally stopped bleeding, and Jesus turned around and said, who touched me? And finally, this brave and courageous woman recognizing that by her touching Jesus she had effectively made him unclean according to the Jewish standards she bravely and courageously said it was me and Jesus looks at her and says something he does not say to anybody else in all of the historical accounts of Jesus in Matthew Mark Luke and John he says something unique to her he says daughter your faith has healed you a woman who had been outcast from her community and society Jesus says You're a daughter of God. At one point, Jesus is having a meal with his disciples, and he actually washes their feet. He takes on the posture of a servant in the home and washes his disciples' feet and says, do this also. But you've got to know that around this time, Jesus, he he was gaining some opposition. Because Jesus said crazy things like, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He didn't say any other religion would get you to God. He didn't say writing the backs of your parents' faith would get you to God. He he didn't say just going to church would get you to God. He didn't say just living next door to a Christian. He didn't say living a good life and doing good things would get you in a right relationship with God. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Nobody gets to the Father except through a relationship with me. And there was two groups of people who didn't like him. He had on one side the religious leaders of his day who felt themselves losing the control of the people. Ironically, in their Jewish religious texts, all throughout the Old Testament is this promise from God that one day he would send a Messiah, one day he would send a Savior. But they couldn't possibly believe that it would be Jesus. He had another group of people that were beginning to grow in their frustration with him, and those were the government officials of his day, the Romans. You see, the Jews were frustrated with Jesus because he was claiming to be God, and from their perspective, that was blasphemy. But the Romans were just as frustrated with Jesus because Jesus was claiming to be God, and they believed Caesar, and Caesar alone was God. And on one afternoon, as Jesus has his disciples close to him, in Matthew chapter 20, it says, Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, and on the way he took the twelve aside, and he said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, talking about himself, 
will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, to be flogged, to be crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. In other words, Jesus is saying, here's the game plan, guys. Here's what's about to unfold in front of you. And in case you had any doubts about who I am, about the validity of my message, in case you had any questions remaining about whether I truly am God on earth with you, well, let me tell you what four things are going to happen outside of my control. And watch me. He says, I'll be mocked. I'll be flogged. I'll be crucified. And then I'll rise from the dead. And if all four of those things happened, especially him rising from the dead, the only response, the only proper response is you are Lord and I am not. And I desperately need you. Uh, on that Thursday night, Jesus gathered with his disciples and and they shared a meal together. And after the meal, Jesus gathered three of his disciples, Peter, James and John. And he said, you guys come with me into this garden. We need to pray. And so they come with him and they and they pray and and Jesus goes a little bit farther and Jesus is on his own and he's talking with his heavenly father who he's in perfect relationship with. And, and the Gospels, which are the historical accounts of the life of Jesus, they actually tell us in the Gospel of Luke, Luke, Luke was a doctor, he was a physician and a historian. He knew medicine, and, and, and he tells us that Jesus was in so much anguish in this moment that he was sweating drops of blood. And Jesus said words, like, Father, if there's any way, take this cup from me. Then Jesus said, not my will be done, but your will be done. Jesus was very aware of what he was going to have to go through. Not only the physical pain that he was about to endure, but the spiritual and emotional reality of bearing the weight of the sin of the world and feeling that separation from God at its fullest. He continues to pray, Father, if there's any way to take this cup from me, please do so, but not my will be done, but yours. A group of religious leaders come to him that night and with a guard around them and they they arrest Jesus. They blindfold Jesus. This is the Jesus that healed people. This is the Jesus that fed people. This is the Jesus that it was said about him for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him won't perish but will have eternal life. Th this Jesus is now blindfolded and being spit on and mocked and struck across the face. As these mockers say to him, if you truly are a prophet, why don't you tell us 
who hits you. See, Jesus is being mocked, just like he said he would. I imagine he didn't get much sleep that night. He's woken up early the next morning. He's brought before the most powerful person in that part of Israel, the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, who's trying to figure out why Jesus is even in his presence. The governor is trying to figure out what to do with Jesus. And then all of a sudden he hears the crowds behind him chanting, Crucify him! Crucify him! Crucify him! And to appease the crowd, Pontius Pilate, he says, Okay, okay, okay. Crucify him, but first, flog him. They take Jesus to a public square where a giant wooden pole would have been in the center of it. And they strip Jesus completely naked. In fact, the text, all the text says is that they flogged Jesus because it was written to, originally, a first century audience that knew exactly what that meant. But 2,000 years later, we're so removed from it. What it meant is Jesus was stripped completely naked and his arms were tied around the pole as a huge crowd gathered around him to cheer and to scream and to laugh and to make a mockery of this as two Roman guards sat on either side of him with whips in their hands, with nails, with rocks, with glass in them. And 39 times, one after the other, they whipped Jesus' back, pulling out the skin. It took two Roman guards because that kind of torture was so laborsome. It was so physically demanding that it took two Roman guards to accomplish it. Think about this. The God who knit each one of us together in our mother's womb is now being undone by those who brought him to the world. Many people in the first century, in fact, there's countless accounts of this. Many died from this. But that's not what happened to Jesus. But what did happen is the second thing Jesus said was going to happen. He was mocked, and then he was flogged. Once they untied Jesus, and he collapsed to the ground, They forced him to carry a giant wooden beam about a mile up this hill. One of the accounts of his life tells us that Jesus was so physically weak that he collapsed and couldn't continue to carry it. And so they grabbed a man from the crowd to carry the wooden beam the rest of the way. And once Jesus got to the very top of this hill, they laid him down his arms stretched out against that piece of wood. And the Roman guards would feel for a depression in his wrist, and they would drive an iron nail through his wrist. They stretched his other arm out and felt for the depression in his wrist and drove another nail through it. And then they put one foot over the other and drove one last nail through both of his feet into the piece of wood. 
and they would violently hoist him up as he's completely exposed. In fact, in the first century, this was the most humiliating way to die. This kind of death was reserved for terrorists. It it was reserved for people who the, the government of that day hated and wanted to make a clear message to all of society, don't do what they did or you'll end up like them. The Gospel of Mark tells us that Jesus is crucified for six hours. And and you don't die from crucifixion, from blood loss. You die from suffocation, from not being able to breathe anymore. For six hours, Jesus lifts himself up to take a breath, causing excruciating pain in his feet. He exhales and lets himself down, experiencing excruciating pain in his wrist. As he's just trying to catch a breath, he is in excruciating pain. And I use that word intentionally because the English word excruciating is drawn from the Latin word, which means excruciare, which literally translates to out of crucifixion. The very word excruciating has the picture of somebody dying painfully on a at Jesus for six hours as he's trying to catch his breath will say things like Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He'll look out at his mother who is terrified because most likely Jesus' father, Joseph, is dead at this point and and Mary's wondering, who's going to take care of me? He looks out at Mary and says, John, my disciple, is your son now. Mary, you are his mother. I mean, the the, the most beautiful expression of compassion and mercy and grace is found in Jesus as he's just trying to catch his breath. He looks to one of the criminals being crucified next to him who proclaims to have faith. And he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus hangs on that cross for six hours until he finally cries out, it is finished. What did he mean by that? He he, he meant, you know what's finished? Satan's hold on us. You know what's finished? Death having the final word in our lives. You know what's finished is the power of sin to keep us addicted and to keep us chained down and to keep us distanced from God. It's finished that the people of God don't have to live in shame anymore. But Satan's power, sin's power, our flesh's power is finished in the work of Christ and what he did on that cross for you But maybe you're still going, okay, I I don't understand, though. What does that ancient story that happened 2,000 years ago have to do with me today? To demonstrate this, I need my friend Stephen. Where's Stephen? Are you over there somewhere, Stephen? Stephen, come on up here. You guys, can you guys give Stephen a round of applause? All right, Stephen, come here real quick. Come on up here on this stage. Okay, Stephen, have you ever been handcuffed before? That's awesome, man. First time for everything. Why not at church camp, right? Okay, so come here. Let me see your wrist. 
Okay. Try not too tight. That's okay. Okay, so here's our problem. Here's our problem when we think about sin. Oftentimes when you and I think about sin, we think it was a bad decision we made last weekend. We think it was something that we're so glad wasn't posted that nobody found out about, that our parents don't know about, that our youth pastors and youth leaders don't know about, and it's something in the past, I'm so glad it's done, and now we can just move on. But because God's word can be trusted and because God loves you, he makes it crystal clear in scripture that sin is death, that sin is like a prison. It'll say all over throughout the scripture that we are enslaved to our sins, that we are literally handcuffed to them, that the wages of sin is death, Paul says in his letter to the church in Rome. And so to help us illustrate this, I want you to think about this luggage right here. I want you to think about it as baggage. I want you to think about it as our sin. And the reality is this, that apart from Christ, you and I are handcuffed to our sin, that you and I are enslaved to our sin. That our sin is too strong and too powerful for us on our own. This is our condition apart from the work of Jesus Christ. And what we try to do is we try to deal with our sin on our own. And we usually try one of two things. First thing we try to do when we realize we've sinned, we've messed up, is we try to hide that from everybody else. We try to convince everyone in our lives that we have it all together through our Instagram posts, through the shallow conversations we have, through the little lies that we tell. We paint a picture that I'm okay on my own, that I've got no issues at all. And so here's what I want you to do, Stephen. I want you to try to hide, if this is your sin, I want you to try to hide it from everybody here. You got to stay right here, though. You got to stay right here. Yep. Try to hide it. (laughs) That's good. Stephen, you're doing awesome. Okay, This, this is an impossible job I've given you. You'll never succeed in this, but it's okay. Raise your hand if you can still see Stephen's sin. Now, he's done a good job. I mean, he's trying to hide it. But the reality is it's still there. And if we can't, if we don't have success hiding it, the second thing we try to do is we try to run from it. We delete that account and start a new one. We leave that school and start a new one. We leave that youth group and join another one. We ditch those friends and get together with these friends. We run back to church to try to earn our way back, thinking that if we run fast enough, our sin won't follow us. Here's what I want you to do. In this little area right here, Stephen, go ahead and run from your sin, brother. Just run from your sin. Okay, go ahead, run from your sin. Wow! Dude, you're a runner. Are you you a track star? Do you do track? That's incredible. You should think about it. Here's the thing. Stephen. Stephen is obviously a very athletic kid. Very fast, very amazing. But I think you saw what I saw. Wherever Stephen went, his sin went with him. Friends, what Jesus Christ did on the cross was he said, I'm, I don't want you to run anymore. I don't want you to try to hide anymore. I don't want you to try to manage your sin on your own. And Jesus did for you what nobody else could do. Jesus was uniquely qualified because he was completely sinless. He was perfect. That only he 
could absorb the sin of the world. And friends, that's what he did on the cross. Let's hope I brought the right speaker. Welcome. Hold on. You see, the reality is Jesus did for Stephen and for me and for you what no boyfriend or girlfriend could ever do. Jesus did for you and I what no job, what no salary, what no self-help book, what no podcast or, or Instagram influencer could ever do for us. That Jesus literally prioritized your life over his own. That Jesus held nothing back to win you back. Why? Because he loved you. Can you guys give Stephen a round of applause? Thanks, Stephen. It's the most amazing love story in the history of the world. But if you're tracking with me, so far Jesus has only accomplished three of the four things he was going to do. He said, I'll be mocked. It happened. He said, I'll be flogged. It happened. He said, I'll be crucified. It happened. But then Jesus said, wait for it. I'm coming back. I'll be raised from the dead. You'll literally see me back from the dead. And students, this is incredibly important. Because if Jesus did not rise from the dead, he did not die for your sin. In fact, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, he's a liar or a lunatic, he's not Lord. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you and I are still handcuffed to our sin and there is no hope for us. But if he did rise from the dead, then that means when he says that you are forgiven through his death and resurrection, you can take that to the bank. That, that when you have that reputation you've been holding on to, you're known as this one person. Jesus says, I can forgive you, I can redeem you, I can restore you, I can do all kinds of incredible things through your story. You can trust him. That when Jesus promises you everlasting life, eternity with him in heaven, forever and ever and ever, and as crazy as that sounds, you can believe it if he rose from the dead. In fact, the Apostle Paul, he, he put it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And so students, before I give you an opportunity to respond to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus, to what he's done on your behalf to invite you into a relationship with himself. I want to help answer a question. Why in the world would we believe that this guy actually came back from the dead? And here's two reasons. And in fact, if you're looking for more, read 1 Corinthians 15. There's at least four reasons that Paul gives, but I'm going to give you two. The first one is this. Jesus, it, Paul says that when Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to all the disciples. 
Why is this significant? Here's why. When Jesus was about to be crucified, do you know how many of his disciples were willing to die with him? Zero. And they loved Jesus. Their lives had been changed by Jesus. They had witnessed miracle after miracle. And yet when that moment came for them to stand arm in arm with Jesus and to look to to the powers of Rome and the religious leaders of that day and say, if Jesus is dying, I'm going to die with him. They were not willing. And in fact, it says that all the disciples, they abandoned him. And yet something really interesting happened. That when they saw him come back from the dead, something changed in them. They realized everything that Jesus said was true. That he truly is God. That he truly is the hope of the world. That he truly has forgiven all of humanity that would choose to receive and that would respond to him. That we can be completely forgiven and freed. And the reason I believe that their lives were forever changed is because history tells us that every single disciple faced persecution. That most of them faced death. Peter was crucified upside down. The disciple John was boiled in oil. The apostle Paul was beheaded. That these disciples, these followers of Jesus were banished on islands. They were separated from their families. They experienced incredible persecution. And almost all of them literally died, not because they knew Jesus, not because they had walked with Jesus, but because they couldn't stop and they wouldn't stop telling the world Jesus rose from the dead. Second reason that Paul gives, and in fact, I just ask you to think about that. How does that make sense? What was it that caused these guys on Friday to say, we're not willing to die with you, Jesus, to then on Sunday not only be willing to give their life for Jesus, but they did? The only logical explanation is they saw with their eyes Jesus back from the dead. Second reason Paul gives, he says that when Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to his brother James. This is a really significant piece of evidence and data proving the resurrection of Jesus. Here's why. Because the Gospels tell us, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they tell us that that the brothers of Jesus, they weren't totally sure about him. That in fact they doubted him and they thought he was crazy. They thought his message was too far out there. But then in the book of Acts, which is the story of the church after Jesus rose from the dead, there's this little detail recorded that James was praying with the disciples. James, history tells us James becomes the, 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 uh, the leader of the Jerusalem church. That, that James, in fact, writes a letter in the New Testament that's recorded for us, and in it, James begins this letter by saying, I, James, a servant of the Lord Jesus. He doesn't even say he's my brother. He says, I am a servant of Jesus who is my Lord. And it cost James everything. During a political transition of power, 
the powers that be were trying to get rid of James, and so they threw him off a temple, and he fell to the ground. And a crowd gathered around him, and they beat him until he died. And they did not beat him because he was a brother of Jesus. They didn't beat him because he was raised with Jesus. They beat him because he wouldn't stop. He couldn't stop telling the world, my brother is my Lord. Is there any of you that have siblings? What would it take for, for your sibling to convince you that they were God? Like, what would you have, what would they have to do? Yeah, there you go, preach. That's it, right? And Jesus did just In John chapter 3, 16, it says, for God so, it, it doesn't say that he hated the world. It doesn't say that he's indifferent to the world. And maybe some of you, the reason up to this point you haven't been willing to trust your life with Jesus is because you feel like he's far off, you feel like he's distant, you feel like he doesn't want anything to do with you. Because Jesus actually rose from the dead, we can trust words like this. That for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God loved the world and demonstrated that love by giving himself up. 1 John 1.9, maybe one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible, says this. If we confess our sins, he, talking about Jesus, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Did you catch that? This is the backwards way it works with God. And maybe some of you, one of the reasons you're not, you're not ready at this moment to surrender your life to Jesus is because you know all the junk inside of you. You know those thoughts that you think. You know the things that you've done. And you're going, I, I, I just, I'm not, I, I can't, I'm not ready yet. I, I haven't earned my way. I haven't, I haven't done enough for God yet for him to consider loving me and choosing me. Well, because Jesus rose from the dead, we can trust words like this that literally say, if we are willing to confess our sins, if we are willing to bring the worst of ourselves to Jesus, he will give the best of himself to us. Here's what he promises you. He promises to be faithful. That means when you say, God, this is who I am. This is the mess of my life. This is the ugliest of my sin. He's faithful. That means he's not going to run away from you. You and I, we've spent our lives running away from him. He's not going to run from us. He's just. That means he'll actually deal with your sin. That it all died with Christ on the cross. It's been paid for completely. That you're forgiven. By God Almighty. Every sin we've ever committed is an offense against God. And he chooses to forgive us. And then he promises to continue to be invested in your life. To purify you. To transform you. To recraft you into his image. Just let this blow your mind for a second. I can't get over this. That if you will give the worst of yourself to Jesus, he will give you the best of himself. And then Paul says these words in Romans 10, 9. If you, 
declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. A couple years ago, we had a guy sharing his testimony in our youth group, and he said, would it be okay if I invited some of my friends to come? You see, this guy's story was he had been one of the highest leaders in one of the largest adult entertainment companies in the world. And then he hit rock bottom, and he met Jesus, and he gave up Hundreds of thousands of dollars. And yet he had peace and joy in his relationship with Christ. And so he was sharing his testimony. He said, can I invite some of my friends? And I said, absolutely. And, and so he invited his friend Ryan to come. And, and Ryan was like a big 350-pound football player guy. This guy was huge. And after our friend Tim had shared his story, I got up and quickly shared the gospel and gave an invitation for people to surrender their lives to Jesus. And Ryan in the back raised his hand and just started walking forward. And I mean, he's a big dude, so as he's walking, there's like nothing going to stop him. I mean, he's just, he's, you know, hauling towards me. And I had never met him before, and so I was like, I don't know if he's going to punch me. I don't know what's going to happen. But he came to the front with tears in his eyes, and he said, I want that. I want that forgiveness. I want that freedom. A few weeks later, Tim and I drove over to Ryan's house to continue talking with him. He was ready to surrender his life to Jesus. And we spent about two and a half hours at his kitchen table talking about the gospel. And, and he's weeping as he's confessing his sins, as he's saying, I want Jesus. He chose to receive Christ that night. And he said, what do I do next? And we said, you got to start reading the Bible. you got to get to read the Bible. Do you have a Bible? And he said, yeah. These Jehovah's Witnesses came by and gave me a Bible, and I said, nope, I'm confiscating that. So I took that, and I said, instead, I'm going to give you this one. And I gave him a Bible, and for two weeks, Ryan was in his word. He was nonstop talking about Jesus. This was during the pandemic. He was inviting friends and family over to watch church online, and he was on fire. And then two weeks later, Early one morning, his wife and his oldest child found him dead. We drove over to the house to console the family and a few days later performed a funeral, a memorial service. And that moment has always stuck with me, man. What if that night hadn't happened? What if Ryan had missed out on that moment? What if Ryan had chosen busyness or security or comfort instead of fully surrendering his life to Christ? He would have missed out on all of eternity with Jesus, and he would have been separated for all of eternity from Jesus. You see, life is crazy and it's unpredictable. And all we have is this moment right now. To make the most important decision that you'll ever make. More important than who you're going to marry, if you're ever going to get married. More important than where you're going to live or what kind of job you're going to have. I mean, this, this is the moment. 
So what I want to invite everyone to do is I want to invite everyone to close their eyes. And with your eyes closed, I think there's, there's four different groups of people here tonight. And I believe every single one of us in this room, every single one of us has a next step to take. And I'm not going to tell you what that next step is. No one else is going to tell you what that next step is. That's between you and God. First group I want to talk to you tonight is you're in this room and you have never said yes to Jesus before. That you got invited up to church camp, that you know somebody in the youth group, that your parents forced you to come, that this whole idea that there is a God and that he created you and he wants to be in a relationship with you and that your sin is getting in the way of that and that he is that he died on the cross and rose from the dead to forgive you of your sin and to prove to you that he's God, all of this has been brand new for you. But you know right now in this moment, it is not an accident that you're here in this place. And as Paul said, if you'll declare with your mouth, if you confess and declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And so if tonight you've never begun a relationship with Jesus and you want to start one today, that you recognize all of Scripture demonstrates He has chosen you and you are ready to choose Him and to begin to follow Him with every area of your life, that you want to have the weight of your sin lifted so that you could be in a relationship with the God who created you. If you want to begin following Jesus for the first time, with every eye closed, I want you to raise your hand right now. I want you to raise your hand high as a way of saying, I'm ready to say yes to Jesus. That I want to follow him for the first time. God, I thank you for these hands that are raised. I thank you for these students that are making decisions to make you the Lord of their lives for the first time. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would enter into their lives. That they would know your salvation and your forgiveness. And that every day of their lives, moving forward, would be different because of this moment. You can go ahead and put your hands down with your eyes still closed. There's a second group of people here. You at one time were close with Jesus. You had intimacy with him. You were following him. But if you're honest, the last month, the last six months, the last six years, whatever it may be, you've fallen off and he has not been the Lord of your life. But you know he brought you to camp to get in your face and tell you, I still love you and I still have a plan for your life and I still want to be the Lord of your life. If tonight you want to repent, you want to recommit, you want to re return home, you want to say yes to Jesus again, I want you to raise your hand right now. As a way of saying, Jesus, I'm back. I recognize you never left. I did. You didn't run and hide. I've been running and hiding, and I'm back. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these students across this room who are making declarations, choosing to return to you. God, I pray they would remember, they would know deep in their soul that you're not holding grudges. You're handing out grace. And you're welcoming them home again. You can put your hands down with every eye closed. There's some of you here tonight who you're not ready to say yes to Jesus because of some issue, some struggle. There's something getting in the way. Maybe, maybe it's a big philosophical, intellectual question you have. 
You say, I, I don't know how to believe in God when this is a reality. Or maybe it's an emotional block for you. Maybe something tragic has happened in your life. And you're wondering, how can God be good? How could he be all powerful? How could I follow him because of this? And frankly, you still have questions. I want you to know that we want to help you with that. We want to walk with you. And I would love for it to invite you, with every eye closed, to, to take a next step. To say, you know what, I'm going to start asking those questions. I want to get to the bottom of that because students, your great questions deserve great answers and God has them for you. And so tonight, if you still have questions, if you're not totally sure about Jesus, but you're willing to take some steps forward, to ask some questions, to seek out answers, I want you to raise your hand tonight. As a way of saying, I'm struggling, God. There's some emotional thing. There's some intellectual thing. But I'm raising my hand as a way of saying, I'm willing to take a step forward and get some answers. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these bold, courageous students who recognize there's something keeping them from you. Would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, meet them where they're at, address their questions, speak to the heart of their struggles and their issues, would you draw them to yourself? You can lower your hand. The last group I want to talk to tonight is you've been following Jesus faithfully. And you're not perfect. You've still got stuff going on. But you actually recognize that God brought you up here to camp this weekend because he wants you to take a bold step of faith for him. That you're sensing even right now he wants you to start some kind of Christian club on your campus. That you recognize he's calling you to talk to your soccer team, to share with the girls or the guys on your teams, in your drama club, in your class, in your neighborhood, about your faith in Jesus. That your faith has been a little too private up to this point, and Jesus wants you to go public. That maybe your family has always thought you'd go into this one career, but you're sensing tonight God's calling you into ministry. That God's calling you to the mission field. That God's calling you to give up that dream that you've always had. Put it before his hands and invite him to lead every step of your life. That maybe you've been clinging too tightly to your own safety and comfort and your perfect plan. And tonight God's calling you to take a bold step and to trust him. Maybe it's to go home and tell your parents who don't believe in Jesus, about who he is in your life. Tonight, I want to give you an opportunity. If that's you, if there's something I've talked about or something else that's resonating with you where you recognize God is calling me to take a bold step of faith as a way of saying, I'm going to follow Jesus even into that scary unknown. I want you to raise your hand right now. Saying, I know he's got something. Wow. I know he's got something for me to do, and I'm going to stop saying no, and I'm going to trust him, and I'm going to follow. Heavenly Father, for these students whose hands are held up, who, who recognize that, God, you have put some calling, something on their lives. Lord, give them the boldness in the spirit to follow through, to be obedient to you to do the thing that you are calling them
students, you can open your eyes right now. And as we enter back into a time of worship, I want to invite you to stay seated, to reflect on this experience. There were so many of you who raised your hand to surrender to Christ for the first time, who raised your hand saying, I'm coming home, Jesus, who raised your hand saying, I've still got questions, who raised their hand saying, I know God has called me to something, and I'm ready to say yes and obey. And when you either stay in this space after our worship time or you head back into your cabins, here's, my, here's what I want to ask you. I want to ask you to share with your cabin which of those next steps you raised your hand for and why. Because God's not done with you yet.